last week, we finally received the promise. The very beginning whispers of this thing called humanity, there was this promise that God would come and be with his people. And then the prophecy expanded, not just that he would be with his people, but that he would dwell within his people. The promise of the Holy Spirit. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And then from heaven there came a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That wasn't very mighty. And the Spirit came. And the first thing that happened when the Spirit came is they began to proclaim the mighty works of God and this sea of humanity, this mass of people from all over heard the mighty works of God in their own native language. Which is this incredible picture of, of again, our Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, we see in the original sin, it's not just that they disobeyed God. Their hearts wanted to be God. If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God, crunch. It was their hearts that led to the disobedience, the action, the behavior. And then we see just a few chapters later, the exile from the garden was not enough to get our heart's attention. We see that the... Every imagination and intent of the heart was only evil continually among humankind. In the great flood, God promises I will never amass this kind of destruction ever again. He places the rainbow in the, sun, in the sky as a sign of that promise and that covenant. And then we fast forward just a few more chapters. Genesis chapter 11, we see that the heart of man is still to be God. We're going to build a tower to get to God. It's really a construction project of bowing up. Let's go. We're going to go be in God's face. And this time, remembering his promise, remembering his covenant, God does not pour out death. He pours out disunity. Instead of destruction... There's disconnection. He confuses their languages so that there's now division among humankind. And the second the Spirit shows up, we see, Justin Holcomb, a theologian, said, we see the second the Spirit arrives on the scene, he begins to unroll the curse of Babel. The great Babel reversal happens the first moment the Spirit shows up on the the scene because God is building a people. He's come to heal our division and our disconnection. And so we finally get to hear that first sermon. i got to be honest, I'm really excited about this morning's text. And I'm going to warn you that it's a lengthy text. This is the first sermon ever preached. This is when the church became church. And and I do want to say this, church is church, not just because we're together, but because there's the proclamation, not of someone's ideas or someone's political views or someone's hobby horse, but because there's the declaration of God's word. And you don't have to be excited about reading the first sermon 
Because I'm excited enough for you this morning. Before we do, it's interesting that this is sandwiched by response. So before we get the details of the mighty works of God that they're proclaiming, there's this really interesting summary statement where we left off last week. Verse number 12. Oh, sorry. We haven't said our creed together. You almost let me <laughs> dive into a sermon about the Word of God without saying our creed about... Okay, anyways. If you're a guest today and you have no idea what I'm talking about, we have a creed that we say before we jump in. So hold up your Bibles and let's say this with some conviction this morning because we're going to circle back to this in a minute. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to jump in at verse number 12, which is where we left off last week. So they're hearing in their own native language the mighty works of God. And it says this, and all were amazed, I would have been amazed, and perplexed, yeah, I'd have been perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. There's three responses here. This word perplex is an interesting word in the original language. It can mean to doubt, but it can also just mean to be baffled by, to be confused by. We, we tend to think of doubt as this really negative thing, but sometimes doubt is just asking the right questions. And so we see these three responses that there's some who are amazed and some are confused or they're even doubting it, and then others are outright mocking it. And i got to tell you, those are the same responses that we see today when the works of God are proclaimed. If you, through the Spirit of God, have the boldness of God to proclaim the truth of God to your loved ones, as you're called to do, or to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to your friends, some are going to love what you have to say. Some are going to be confused by what you say, maybe even doubt it, and others will think you're a complete whack job. When I stand here on Sunday mornings, and I see your faces, I see some people who seem to love it, some who are perplexed by it. And I don't see anybody straight up mocking me out loud. <laughs> Whispering, maybe. But there's great freedom in this. This is the, the outpouring of the Spirit was so powerful that there was physical manifestations. And some people didn't receive it. Which means when you proclaim the truth of God and somebody rejects you, they're not rejecting you. The response isn't up to you. It's between the hearer and the spirit. So if, if you ever are like, I don't like what you said, just know that that's not on my job description. Now, if I say something and you're like, that's not what the Bible says, set up an appointment. Let's have a conversation. But if it's just something that you're not digging or that could have been more entertaining, it is not my job to entertain you. It's my job to declare the mighty works of God. And then it's up to you and the Holy Spirit 
to choose to respond. Verse 14, we're going to see that same idea again. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give me your ears. That's your job description, church. To open your mind and engage with God's word isn't my job. We have this really broken moment in church history where the first time ever in the history of the church, pastors feel the pressure to perform. It's not my job to make this interesting. If the rescue of miraculous grace is not interesting enough, the problem is not the communicator. Verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Which is just not what you think he's going to say. <laughs> so the third hour, that's nine o'clock. I guess it's too early for that. We weren't having mimosas in the upper room for breakfast this morning. And you know... That there was some redneck Judean who was like, it's nine o'clock somewhere. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) James of Buffett. (laughs) (laughs) Next time you listen to that devil music, you're going to be like, well, the spirit is moving. Okay. Verse 16. This is so important. Okay. Um, These words matter so much. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The first thing that Peter did in the first sermon ever preached at the first church with the first feeling of the Holy Spirit was preach God's word. He's going to quote here from Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. Because he has it memorized. Because God's word is in his heart. It's the reason it comes out of his mouth. And in just a second, he's going to quote from the tail end of Psalm 16. Because he's also hidden that in his heart. And then a couple minutes later, he's going to quote from Psalm 110. Because there is no such thing as church apart from spirit-filled preaching of God's word. And depending on the faith tradition that you grew up in, some denominations want their preachers to be very refined and eloquent and seem brilliant. And others want them to be really loud and hellfire brimstone, just scare me to Jesus every Sunday. And some want them to be really funny. And the common denominator in all of that is most of the churches in the U.S. are filled today with people who have found what they want. And then we have this whole new modern movement where we just want a pastor who's super cool, who's hip and edgy and trendy and young. Are there any more adjectives that don't apply to me? (laughs) Great hair. (laughs) 
in shape down there. And literally, what we see here in this first sermon is, here's the marker for knowing that you're in the right church. Is the preacher faithful to the word? Not his political views. Not his political views. Or his political views. Or his views on politics. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, meaning the days when the Spirit of God would be poured out on His people. This doesn't mean Revelation kind of last days. That's going to be referenced later in the text. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Talk about countercultural. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. In a culture where women had no value and no voice, they would speak with the prophetic voice of God. Oh. And your young men who have no value, they're not allowed to speak in an assembly, shall see visions. Do you realize this thing called the church was launched as a youth movement? Why is it worth it? To have a church ministry where we change diapers and whisper Jesus to babies. How's that worth the trouble? How's it worth it to have a science lab at a church and teach high schoolers? How is it worth it? Because that's not just how the church started. Every single revival in the history of this thing called the church began among young people. But not to the exclusion of adults. Because your old men will dream dreams. And I keep finding myself on a bridge between the middle of this verse. Depending on what room I'm in. That board meeting we hosted last week, I felt really young in that room. And then I hang out with my son's friends and I'm like, I'm 110. Visions or dreams, here I am, Lord. Even on my male servants, the outcast, the marginalized, and female servants, that's all flesh. In those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. All this Old Testament picture here. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And he's trying really hard to get to verse 21. Because this is, this is everything. This is everything. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on that name, that is above every name. The only name given among men whereby we must be saved. That name. Everyone who calls on that name shall be saved. Amen. Glory to God. Everyone. In case we missed anybody in that quote from Joel. Everybody. Who calls on the name that they're hearing in their own native tongue. Jesus so desperately wants the world to hear his name that he makes sure that they hear it in their heart language. 
Why? So that they could be saved. Everyone. Saved from what? I'm glad you asked. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Again, he's imploring the hearers that you have work to do when the word of God is proclaimed. It's to hear. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, here it is, buckle up, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Now, you didn't do it with your hands. You did it by the hands of lawless men, but make no mistake, you killed Jesus. People who were not in Jerusalem 50 days before then, 51 days before then, the day before Passover, he said, you're still culpable. This is so crucial for us to understand. He's telling them we all are guilty for the death of Jesus because ultimately it was not a soldier. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. Now, it was his grace and mercy that kept him there, but it was our guilt that put him there. The cross... The teaching of the cross, I just read an article this morning. A lawsuit was filed in South Carolina by a mother who believes that teaching the Bible is anti-Semitic. And by the way, there are some people who've used this, this passage of Scripture to defend anti-Semitic views. And let me just be honest, we are as guilty as the Roman soldiers or the Jewish mob for nailing Jesus to the cross. I'm guilty. The great unifier. Some of you have been to Ecuador with us. I know it's been a while. It's been over a decade since we've been there. But when we go to Ecuador, we visit the trendy, touristy equator spots where the water goes two different directions on either side of the equator. I'm convinced it's complete bogus. But there's a church built in one of those little gathering spots. Some of you have been to that church with me. In the center of this church is a yellow painted line. It looks like the middle of a traffic line. We went there with Mel Neal. And that is supposedly the church is built right over the equator. I don't even know how to read a compass, so they could be totally messing with my head. But they have believed for hundreds of years... That if you, and it's a small church, there's just pews here and pews here. If you sit on this side, you're worshiping in the northern hemisphere. If you sit on this side of the auditorium, the sanctuary, you're worshiping in the southern hemisphere. So we can be in the same place, worshiping the same God on two different sides of the world. Man, that sounds like the church today. In this divided season, over political views and racial reconciliation and how we should have handled COVID or not handled COVID or what we think about vaccines as we're so divided and our opinions have grown so polarizing and extreme. Here's the great uniter. We all need a savior. 
We all need rescue. We are all guilty and in need of a rescue of grace. And in this incredible sentence, Peter brings unity to hundreds of years of discord among the church. This great unifying idea where young men and young women and servants and everyone's valued here. Why? Because we all are of the same disease. It's called sin. We need a rescue of grace. It's what brings us together. And in this verse, we see the plan of God to rescue humankind who are guilty. Skip Heitzig said the first sermon ever preached in the spirit of God. In one sentence, Peter married the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, there are whole denominations who agree on everything except for is God sovereign or am I responsible? Who's really in control here? Which is it? And in this one sentence, he says it was the definite plan of God. You mean he just knew? No. Also his foreknowledge. Well, then that means he's responsible. You crucified and killed him. In this one verse, we see the the bridge built between God is sovereign. God had a plan. God knew what was coming. And we're fully responsible for our own sin. Praise God, Peter wasn't done preaching. Verse 24, God raised him up. He didn't have a mic, but that had been a cool mic drop moment. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Hallelujah. Because we keep saying in this book of Acts, the resurrection changes everything, right? Check this out. He's, he's fixing to go to Psalm 16, which is my favorite psalm. When I tell my brother Mark's story, I quote Psalm 1611. The whole sermon revolves around that one verse that we're about to get to. David says concerning him, Jesus of Nazareth, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption, decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full Of gladness with your presence. Brothers. Peter's talking now. He's he's done quoting. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Uh Uh-oh. Dude's fixing to talk about King David to a huge group of Jewish people. That's where Matthias, the new guy, was like... Easy tiger. Wool. What are you going to say about David? That, that didn't really happen. In case you were looking for that in the text. 
I may say this to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both, two things, both, died and was buried. And is in his tomb, his tomb is with us, to this day there's some historians who say that where they believe the upper room was, where the court, huge courtyard was, where these thousands of people have gathered, they say that if you stand in that upper room looking at that courtyard, you can see the sepulcher of David's burial place from there. I have no idea if that's true, but it sounds cool. I've never been to the Holy Land, and I'm not sure that we really know where all these places were. Speaking of tourist traps. <laughs> but how cool is that? They would have known where that was. It was a place of... Honor. It was a place that they would visit and pay homage. And he's like, yeah, it's occupied. <laughs> Being, therefore, a prophet, I thought David was a psalmist, a king, shepherd boy, a warrior. Uh, he's a prophet because he's speaking about the coming Messiah. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. It was a messianic prophecy. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead, nor his flesh see corruption, decay. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus didn't both. See, Jesus both died and was buried, and got back up. And that changes everything. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, right here, right now, in that moment, in that place. Verse 34, David did not ascend in the heavens, He himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's somebody more important than David on the scene. His name's Jesus of Nazareth. You killed him. He raised himself from the dead. Verse 36, this is the end of that sermon. We'll look quickly at their response to it and then we'll be done today. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain... That God has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord and Christ. And for us, who've been around the scriptures for a long time, we're like, yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like his name or something, isn't it? No, These are titles being authoritatively, prophetically bestowed upon Jesus of Nazareth. The word Lord is not a word that we use unreligiously in our culture, but it was then. It was a common word. Think of Old English, all of you who watched Downton Abbey when that was all the rage, right? The Lord of the Manor is the what? The El Jefe. Is that too sacrilegious? That's the sacrilegious thing I said today. <laughs> it's nine o'clock somewhere, didn't? Okay. It's the boss. He's in charge. Which would have been incredibly offensive to these Jewish listeners 
Because there's only one God. They had no concept of a triune God existing in three persons as one God. Beyond their wildest imagination. What do you mean Jesus of Nazareth is Lord? How dare you? And any Roman who'd have been in town and overheard this would have said, there's no Lord but Caesar. How dare you? And that's the thing. If the original sin is a rebellious heart against the godness of God, then saving grace accepts, submits to, humbles itself before the godness of God. He can't be your savior if he's not your boss. We've got a watered down version of the gospel today in our culture that says, I want all the goods from Jesus without any submission to his authority. And that's not how it works. Because the first sermon ever preached says he's Lord and Christ. Christ, again, is the New Testament form of anointed one. It's a reference to the messianic personhood fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Savior. He's the long-awaited one. He's Lord and Christ. Now, mic drop. Now they heard, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Let me just say this really quickly. When we hear God's word, the only appropriate response is, Holy Spirit, do your work in my heart. And now what do you want me to do? My prayer for 11 years standing on this stage has been, God, I have no words to offer, but through your word and your spirit, will you cut us to the heart And then change us. And I can tell you this morning, with a clear conscience before God in 11 years, I believe before the throne of God, I've not mailed it in one time. Now, I don't know, I haven't done a great job every time. I'm not that arrogant. There's a billion better communicators in the Metroplex than me, let alone churches across the country than me. But I've begged God for 11 years to cut our hearts open and change us from the inside out through the power of his word and the work of his spirit. So they asked, what shall we do? And Peter had to pick the mic back up. Peter said to them, repent. Do you know why Peter said that to them? Because that's what he heard Jesus say over and over and over and over again. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe and repent. To turn, to alter the, the, the gravitational direction of a life away from God. To turn in our thinking and in our behavior. To be oriented towards the God that we trust. That we believe in. That we've placed our faith in and been rescued by. Repent and be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to talk through this verse real quick because this is a verse that's gotten awfully messed up today. 
There's denominations who've taken this one verse of scripture and pulled it out and said, we're going to build an entire belief system around this one verse. When the reality is the proper way to interpret scripture is with scripture. When we have a verse that we're like, that sounds weird. Let's look at what the rest of the Bible teaches and interpret through those lenses. Because if you take these words the way they flow in English, it would appear that I have to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus. And I have to be baptized in order to receive forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. But the word for in the original language in the Greek is the word ice. Which also means in lieu of. Or because of. It's the way that we would grammatically use it. The soldier received an award for his bravery. The award did not give him bravery. The award was because of his bravery. And so I don't believe that I have to do anything to be saved. Otherwise, I'm my savior. Or if Jesus and I save me, I'm my co-savior, which is no better. So when we take this in the teaching of Scripture and seeing the original language, what we understand is it's only when I repent of my sin that I'm rescued by grace through faith, not of works. Because this isn't by me. Because I believe that because I'm guilty... Because my sin nailed him to the cross, there is therefore nothing I can say, do, think, or feel to save myself. Do we believe that? And the reason it's important to start there is because then that leads me to this reality. That means there's nothing I can say, do, think, or feel To keep myself saved. Come on somebody. Because that also means. There's nothing I can say. Do think or feel to unsave myself. Hallelujah. I'm rescued by grace. I'm not that big a deal. I cannot unadopt myself. He's a better father than that. I've given him a million reasons to be done with me and his mercy has been relentless. That was more than a second. I'm sorry. But here's the best news of all. Verse 39. The promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off. Well, what about everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself? That language matters. Remember, this whole thing started with a sound from heaven. Verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, and by the way, can I just say, with many more words. Okay. One person got that. Maybe only one person appreciated it. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Again, interpret scripture with scripture. He's not saying save yourself. He's saying get out of your own way. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 
souls. As we've had these missionary presentations the last couple of weeks, our services have been a little long. But we've not baptized 3,000 people. <laughs> the first church service wasn't about how quick can I get home. Three thousand people were born again on that great day. That's some serious wind blow. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And I believe that needs to be told to every man, woman, boy, and girl on planet Earth in every generation until he comes again. And the more we do that, the more we commit our lives to that, the more confidence grows in his power and in his authority. Let me share this story and then we'll be done. Greg mentioned he and I's time together in Haiti. And there's a lot of stories we could tell about that trip. That was just one of those experiences. Here's the thing about Haiti. They're... One missions organization estimates 84% of Haitians practice voodoo, which is the literal, actual worship of Satan. Like, not the water boy, that's the devil, Bobby. I'm talking like actual Satan. I don't think it's that high. But if somebody's going to estimate that high of a number, whatever the real number is, is bad. It's an evil place. One particular day, Greg and I were on the Polaris cart as a six-wheel cart, two wheels in the front, four wheels in the back, open-air cart. We were going up the mountain on the road to visit a missionary uh, with a home for orphan children, amazing godly widow. We were on her way up, and pretty quick as we started up this trail, we saw a guy in the middle of the road acting super freaky hunched down, it's like something straight out of a horror movie, and dressed like what you probably picture when you think of as a witch doctor. I was like, well, what's that? Greg stops driving. He's like, that's a witch doctor. The dude had grass that he was pushing so hard on the ground, he was drawing with grass. It was turning green. And... He was drawing curses on us that we would have to cross over in order to go up the mountain. This moment was being experienced with two male siblings. I ain't scared. You scared? (laughs) No, I ain't scared. Then why are we sitting still? You know? Like, is there another way up? He's like, dude, it's a mountain. Like, what? A helicopter? Do we turn around? And we contemplated it for a second. And then hubris, arrogance, stupidity, faith in the name of Jesus. I'm like, no, let's go. Or maybe he said, let's go. It's probably me. So... We started to drive, and I had no idea what to do. Bible college never trained me for how to encounter a witch doctor drawing curses for you. That, that Maybe I skipped that day. 
I didn't go to a whole lot of my undergrad classes. I'm not going to lie. I just started speaking the name of Jesus. And then I'm like, hold on, home slice doesn't know English. He probably only knows Creole. And that's one of four Creole words I know is the name of Jesus. So then I started saying, Jesse, Jesse. And then we crossed over those curses and neither of us burst into flames. And in, in my mind, in that moment, I'm thinking, God, you know all the things he did to me when we were younger. Like, surely if one of us is going to burst into flames. <laughs> right? I'm just contemplating how quickly can I slide over the driver's seat and keep going before. Anyways, that's not true. I mean, it's a little, but not really. But as we crossed over, all of a sudden, my shaky Jay-Z, Greg can tell you, turned into Jay-Z! Now I was fired up. I was leaning out the cart, which is really, it was an open air cart. There was really no reason at all to lean out, but that's just how bold I was. Yelling at the guy once we made it past. And here's the deal. The more we speak Jesus into a situation and watch him do something extraordinary, the more confident we become to speak Jesus in the next moment too. When we're scared to death, God, could you provide 13 grand above our normal faith promise missions? And he does it in 16 hours to the most unlikely, bizarre stories you could ever possibly hear. Here's the deal. I have confidence today that when we speak the name of Jesus, there's power in it. it changes everything. So this morning, I'm not asking you sell yourself short and just experience the bland, boring life of speaking Jesus to the nations. I'm saying stop selling yourself short, chasing anything else this world has to offer because there's power in the name of Jesus.